Hey guys, welcome back to the Half Natty Podcast. Today we have returning guest, Brian Miner. You guys know him, but just to give you a quick background, Brian has a master's in health and exercise. He's a natural pro bodybuilder with the IPE and NGA. He competes in raw powerlifting as a 93-kilo lifter. He's a certified strength conditioning specialist, an online coach for strength sports and bodybuilding, and one of the coolest lifting dads on Instagram. <laughs> and then we also have a second guest. Yes, you get two with this episode. Eric Helms. He is the Chief Science Officer of 3D Muscle Journey. He has a PhD in strength conditioning with a focus in auto-regulation for powerlifting. He has a master's with a focus in protein and macro manipulation for dieting bodybuilders. He has a second master's in exercise science and health promotion, a bachelor's in sports management. Not to mention he is a pro bodybuilder with the PNBA, competes in raw powerlifting, and had one of my favorite YouTube series called Anecdotes and Observations, or better known as AO. Welcome to the podcast, Eric and Brian. Oh, the throwback. I appreciate that, man. The Thank throwback. you. Um, Do you still make those episodes? No. No, no, no. Okay. It wasn't that long ago. You say throwback. That was like a year and a half, wasn't it? it was Internet yeah. throwback. Okay. Yeah. All right, guys. So for today's topic, I, I know all of y'all have heard Eric and Brian speak on programming in general typically in more of a macro scale but today we're going to try to approach it with a little bit of a reverse engineering type of an aspect from the session structure backwards um so i kind of just want to initiate the conversation with a little bit of a broad question and what are we wanting to look for when we look to optimize session structure within programming what are the big hitters what are the key tenets um, and then we'll kind of progress into a little bit of the nitty gritty detail and try to transition into progressive nature of programming over time. Um, but Eric, if you want to kind of start us off with session structure and, and what we should be looking for in setting that up so we can start to reverse engineer this back from the individual session. Absolutely. I think I'm going to reverse engineer your reverse engineering to answer this question. Um, I think when you design an individual session, one of the biggest tenants is that it needs to fall in line with the structure of the, the microcycle. Um, so, you know, you might have two upper body days in the week. Uh, you might have two lower body days in the week. You might be training with something like a legs push pull twice or a legs push pull upper lower. Nonetheless, there are various structures where you might be training uh, overlapping muscle groups or be potentially carrying fatigue that is relevant into a subsequent session. Uh, or be coming into a session with subsequent fatigue from something that, that you already did. So the way you design any individual session needs to take that into mind rather than simply how do I get the most out of this session I can't because that can invariably lead to the next session not being able to do that. Or if you did that in your last session, this current session, you wouldn't be able to get the most out of it. You could, you could put forth maximal effort, but that could you know, in, in the context of different setups, uh, impede your overall progress. So I think you need to have a little bit of a macroscopic view to even start with the microscopic. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly what uh, Eric said. That was one of the points I was going to touch on is just the, the residual effects each session has on, on the next. Um, and then, you know, just kind of build off of that. 
you know, once you sort of have established your volume for the week and you're allocating it across, you know, however many sessions of frequency you have for a given movement or muscle group, um, just making sure that each, um, you know, each session has a reasonable amount of volume. Like you're, you're not going to the point where, you know, you're getting quote unquote junk volume where it's, you know, additional work with minimal addition, if any additional gain. Um, but I, I think it's hard. I think it's hard to um, sort of reverse engineer things. Like I, it's, it's, this is a challenging conversation to have without sort of circling back um, like Eric said, but I, uh, you know, I think there's individual, like you can look at things on an individual level, but ultimately you end up having to tie it back to, you know, what your more like macro plan is for the, the week as a whole. So go ahead, go ahead. I just, this one observation, I think the, the traditional bro split um, actually came from a mentality of that's a good point. How do I get the most out of this session? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you just hammer away and blow up a single muscle group, maybe two, you do have to therefore have a lag time. And when you, before you train it again, um, the most common thing when I would say the, the, don't get me wrong. Historically, we've had a ton of times when bodybuilders have not trained with bro splits. And that is very much someone who is only had a kind of a current view on say like the eighties till now who would say, Oh, bodybuilders always train bro splits like that. That's not true for, for the longest time. Bodybuilders training upper, lower and full body splits. Um, and then it started to emerge in the sixties, wasn't dominant. And then even now there are camps like HST people act like full bodies, a new thing, but hypertrophy specific training. It was around the nineties was basically like three full body days instead of having like five body part days and just spread it differently. Anyway, what I'm getting at though, is that I think when you have a mentality of go as hard as you can, uh, maximize volume for a body part and maximize proximity to, or I should say minimize proximity to failure, go to failure, uh, it, it closes so many doors um, that it results in a bro split more often than not. I remember the more modern iteration of increasing the frequency of training each body part that became popular in kind of the internet era was like fat, you know, Lane Norton talking about the power hypertrophy split, uh, quote unquote. Uh, where you train each muscle group twice per week. And the, the first comment that most bodybuilders gave was, there's no way, way I'll be recovered in three days to do that. And it was because they were coming from the mindset of, I got to take each set to the house. I want to maximize effort. And they weren't thinking along the lines of holding back a little bit or even cutting their volume in half, but just distributing it differently. I just wanted to make that observation. So so what makes, if, if, we, if we check all those boxes, right? If we say, you know, we're considering the, the macro and the micro split. What makes the individual session successful? If I had to word it like that. Go ahead, Luke. Let's go. Matt, can I add one thing to that? Because I think that's the yeah. appropriate question. But would it be easier to work? Because I was expecting that kind of answer. I was going to ask if it would be work, easier to work from a contextual split setup that we're discussing. As in like setting the parameters of possibly PPL and then discussing Matt's specific question of within those parameters, what are we looking for that makes that individual so successful like Matt's pointing out? I think that's a good idea. Good with that, yeah. Okay, yeah, because a lot of our listeners are PPL-based variations, just with 
kind of the population we do. So let, let's set the parameters of PPL and or any basic variation of that, kind of like you pointed out, like with the PPL upper lower or something like that, and then discuss some of the successful sessions within that. Because for me, I look at it from a movement pattern perspective, right? Like it's very like, what movement patterns am I generally devoting the most intensity and or volume to within a session? And then how am I bringing variety to those movement patterns within the rest of the split? So let's set the parameters for PPL and let y'all kind of run with it from there. Sweet. Um, so, so we're working under a PPL paradigm and then the question is what again? What, what makes the individual session successful? Um, like what do we look for? Like what, what is considered a successful session within that, that paradigm? Brian, you want to start? Yeah, um, you know, if we're, if we're starting with, you know, assuming we're doing push-pull legs, training each, you know, either movement pattern or we'll say muscle group, you know, movement pattern sort of is a bullet underneath that um, or vice versa. So, you know, I, I think kind of the easiest way to go about it is if you know roughly, you know, what your target volume is going to be. And I guess, I mean, that's, that's a whole discussion right there, but, um, you know, let, let's, let's say you, you knew, say it was 15 sets a week for an arbitrary body part. So, um, you know, there, there is some, um, like in James Krieger's in-house meta-analytic data that he mentions, that, that point within a session, you know, like eight to 10 sets on average, you know, there's going to be outliers, this for sure. But you kind of use that as a, um, and Eric, this steal the term from you, but it's like use frequency as sort of a valve to manage the volume within each session. So, um, you know, if we're training twice a week, you know, we're, we're within the, the confines of that, you know, quote unquote rule. So, um, you know, we'd be doing you know, seven to 10 sessions or 10 sets, you know, within each session, depending on how you want to allocate that. Um, so I think that that's the first step, but I think there also even, you can sort of table that for a second and then, you know, decide what movement patterns your exercises that you're wanting to do, because I think that that influences in practice certainly influences, I think the um, you know, the magnitude of stimulus that each muscle is going to have, um, and receive, because I think it's, you know, a set of leg extensions, you know, may not hit, you know, the same, you know, it's, it's not going to be the same stimulus necessarily as a set of squats exactly. And so, you know, when you kind of look at it on a more micro scale, you know, you want to make sure you have the movement patterns, um, or exercises in place and then that the execution of those is, is in place. And so there's all of these kind of contingencies, but, um, you know, assuming that like in this scenario that the majority of the movements I think are, you know, compound in nature or at least kind of built around those, you know, setting those first, um, and then sort of fanning out from there and, and, you know, obviously, 
assigning intensities to each. Um, but you know, with the push pull legs split, when we talk about intensity, you know, I think what's typical in, or I say most common is having some type of undulating intensity across the week. So, you know, and that can have, you know, varying disparities there, you know, you could be 12 to 15 rep, you know, on average to, you know, five to eight or something like that. So, um, so there's a lot of ways you can split that up. Then within that, you can kind of start to assign the number of sets per, you know, lift, um, and go from there. But I feel like I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. So, um, I'll stop there and hopefully collect, let, let you guys build off of that mess. <laughs> yeah. If I was to, if I was to chime in, I would say kind of overarching theme is a, a, a successful session is you did your job. Um, and what I mean by that is you hit your, within your target RPE range, um, you performed your movements to the standard uh, that, that you were able to compare to prior sessions to actually gauge progress and to consider that you still did the same movement versus a barbell row becoming an Olympic standing hip thrust, um, you know, a, uh, you know, a bench not becoming a, a rib cage rebound contest, um, et cetera, et cetera. Unless you always do it that way, then, I mean, I don't recommend always doing it that way, but at least it's consistent, right? Um, you're not doing progressively higher squats, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think meeting the movement standard, doing your job there, meeting the target RPE, doing the job there, meeting the target rep range, doing your job there. Ostensibly, we'll probably have a plan for a lot of those. It could be an auto-regulated plan. You know, you might have like a Brian Miner-esque approach where the RPE stays relatively constant and you fluctuate within a rep range and progress when you reach the top of it. But it's not like Brian's saying, hey, anywhere from three to 25 at eight RPE. You know, most of the time he's saying like eight to 12 at a seven to nine RPE or something like that, or maybe not a, an RPE range. But I think there's a lot of different paradigms of how you could set this up. I think Brian did a good job of giving us a little look outside of this microcosm to know where those contingencies and variables and impact that might come from. But essentially when you're within that microcosm, whatever stuff informed your sets, reps, RPE, exercise selection and performance of them. Uh, those are the things that your, your job is to come in and do them. Um, keep, I also had keep consistent rest, rest intervals within whatever paradigm you're doing, you know, and that, and that can span a broad range of things. If you're using RPE and you're resting five minutes one day, and the next time you, you train, you notice, oh shit, the gym's closing in 30 minutes. I forgot it was different hours on the weekend and you cut your rest intervals in, in half. Um, you're going to have a very different workout and that shouldn't necessarily be something you use as a comparator. Um, even if you're doing something like myo reps, like if you always take three breaths, make sure you take three breaths be between those sets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a lot of it is meeting the intended stimuli you're trying to produce. And the second one is ensuring that you're providing consistency so you can assess uh, progress over time, uh, which involves trying to minimize the signal to noise ratio. Yeah. And I think, you know, to add to that, I mean, it's an excellent point. And I think something that gets overlooked is the consistency of the variables, both in, um, you know, assessing progress, but also informing where we come up with these values to begin with um, and knowing like what, what your targets are 
you know, that you're aiming for within each session. If it's based off of, you know, wildly variable rest intervals, I mean, that the stimulus is going to be, you know, different each time. And so, um, or to varying degrees anyway. So, yeah, I think the consistency part is extremely important. Um, Can I be a Greg Doucette for just a second? Do it. So I, I should mess up my hair even more, but um, <laughs> I want to give a little bit of respect to the concept of just coming in and working as hard as you can within a given paradigm. And let's say, and like I said, that might result in the bro split. The bro split has been sufficient for the vast majority of champions in bodybuilding. We have to state that. That's shown in the data and anecdotally. A lot of the times anecdotally, you think you see an observation, but you're in a bubble. Um, you know, I've had people who contact me and they follow like Jordan Peters or they follow someone else. I'm like, hey, everyone trains this way. I'm like, now everyone on your feed trains that way. Um, so uh, all we can take from that is that's not something that prevents success, right? But what we can say objectively, there was a meta-analysis done or a systematic review. I can't remember which, but it was a, a meta look at all of the data and multiple surveys on bodybuilders and like two thirds of them used a bro split and one third of them that, that quote unquote body part split resulted in training muscle groups twice per week. So I think it, it needs to be said that this is a podcast about trying to eke out, you know, optimal outcomes in mostly competitors. So we are talking about something that won't make a difference for a lot of people. Um, but you know, we're, we're, it's competitive bodybuilding, you know, it's not like you're like in baseball, like who cares if you're throwing 89 or 91 mile per hour fastball. It's like, uh, the baseball player, the pitcher, yeah. and the team is trying to win, you know, the World Series. So I think it really depends on just what we're talking about. And you absolutely could just set up a system where you just have a microcycle. You just have your body parts distributed. You give yourself a, a reasonable but probably on the, the moderate low end of volume if you're going to take every set to the house and go to failure. And then, you know, every once in a while, you change your rep range and you change your movements. That's valid. And I think you can get to an advanced level at a slightly slower pace by doing that. Uh, how much of a slower pace? Not a lot. And it won't matter at some point when you're, you know, 10 years deep. So just to kind of, you know, remove the validity of, of our entire career uh, everyone on this podcast, <laughs> but no, but in all seriousness, I, I do think it's important to note uh, that you could easily make that point. It probably should be made. Um, and that we are talking about minutia that'll make a small difference. I think that I think that was kind of part of y'all started to highlight the the topic that I wanted to kind of stream into next is how the micro variables within the session can actually influence the macro variables across the the program. Um, specifically, like one that you pointed out is the amount of stimulus to fatigue within form within movements. Right. One thing that I find a lot of is that people will drive so much fatigue relative to the stimulus when form is like absolutely trash to the point that they're actually limiting the amount of volume they can end up training at and, and recover capacity to be progressive in nature. Um, so what are the biggest mistakes possibly touching more on that one as well that you see within that micro that end up influencing the macro on the long term? Right. Uh, yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I've talked too much on progressive overload um, on various podcasts, but I think a lot of things go back to the idea of needing to force progression to you know, elicit an adaptation. And I think that like it, it, the 
counter argument or the critique of that, that message is like, it's a chicken or the egg scenario, right? Like you either, like you need to, it is driving that adaptation, but is it a result of prior adaptations as well? And the answer is yes to both. But I think the way you approach it mentally has a big impact on how things go in practice. And I think when somebody is constantly trying to like beat the logbook, um, you run into situations that you described where um, like what Eric said, you know, leg press or squats are getting progressively higher, um, you know, and, and people are breaking form for the sake of getting an extra rep or adding five pounds. And in the end, it's like you, you may be getting a similar stimulus, but you're definitely getting more fatigue. Are you getting, um, you know, could you be getting more stimulus with better technique and less fatigue? You know, that's likely. And I think that's one big difference between, you know, training for hypertrophy and training for, for strength is with hypertrophy, it's like you're, you want to get as much as you can out of less, you know, it's like you, you want that fatigue cost to be as low as possible. And obviously with, with strength, that's true at the same time, but you, you also have those lifts in place that are inherently going to be more fatiguing, you know, systemically than others. So, um, so yeah, I would say execution in just the, the mentality of, of chasing progression with, you know, at the expense of, of technique and, you know, keeping things consistent going back to that is probably the biggest thing that I see. I think one thing I would add is, um, the concept of a stimulus to fatigue ratio is a really useful one. Um, however, I have seen people making definitive statements about like stimulus fatigue ratios as in, well, we know that the leg press has a lower stimulus to fatigue ratio than the squat. And I'm like, who, who is we and how do we know that? And, and what are you actually measuring? So uh, the scientist and me, whenever someone makes a definitive statement, um, always crops up. It's the same thing. Like if someone says, Hey, the MAV for chest is probably around 14. You, you can't know that. So you were that you were pulling that number out of your butt. Um, like we, I, I I've seen all the data that exists and all the meta analyses and we have a reasonably broad range for what we think is optimal for any body part in the context of training to failure. So now when you make more, you know, like mistiness around that, okay, not training to failure, not making any assumptions about frequency or the rep range or anything like that. Let's add heterogeneity, uh, and then we're going to not say it's for all muscle groups. We're going to talk about a specific muscle group. I know that would reduce the number of studies that you'd even be able to look at. You can't know that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think general anecdotal statements are useful for concepts and observations because we don't have that precision or, or that fidelity. And I think it's 100% true. There is a stimulus to fatigue ratio, um, and it differs by a lot of things. You know, your, your biomechanics uh, the rep range you're training in, the proximity to failure, uh, your acute status, like how, how much recoverability do you have? Uh, it may be that it doesn't matter that, that a squat has a poor stimulus to fatigue ratio because you're in the off season healthy and have good levers. Um, and the slight benefits to having uh, more support musculature and synergists and, you know, stabilization and getting more kind of global hypertrophy from it is worth the, the unbalanced, uh, you know, uh, stimulus to fatigue ratio. It may not be true when you're eight weeks out, you know, um, 
or someone with longer femurs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think um, absolutely some of these acute variables we need to think about of basically, like Brian said, how do I get the most stimulus out of the least amount of non-helpful fatigue is really important. Um, and this kind of basically adds nuance to the discussion of kind of the bodybuilder's mindset, you know, like go hard or go home, uh, you know, take it to the house, falls to the wall, all that stuff. That mindset is facilitative towards getting through a very grueling sport uh, that is about inducing high levels of tension progressively and often requiring some level of fatigue and local muscle, but also just kind of the cultural aspect of we're in competitive starvation. So you, you have to kind of be able to, to really have some grit. So that, that grit mentality is great if you understand what type of fatigue is helpful and what type of fatigue is counterproductive. Um, and so a whole lot of local metabolic fatigue is only helpful in so much as it results in higher motor unit recruitment. And this is just one example. Um, but if you do too much of that and it raises your RPE a whole lot, but you haven't done a whole lot of work, like you've done, like Brian said earlier, a bunch of junk volume to make the last three reps of, of something be stimulative, but then the whole rest of the workout goes in the tank and you're throwing up in the bathroom, you know, it felt very hard, but it wasn't very effective. Um, so I think, I think having an idea and an understanding of, of what is helpful fatigue uh, and what is not helpful fatigue uh, coming into a session with lingering central fatigue because you overdid a whole bunch of muscle damage, uh, and those two things tend to, tend to go together, uh, or creating a whole bunch of cardiometabolic fatigue that doesn't result in a ton of, of higher level motor unit recruitment. Like if you do like the old Milo Sarchev stuff, where you take like three exercises, zero rest, high reps, light weights, and you take them near to perceptual failure, you're probably not actually getting close to actual failure because of the cardiovascular fatigue of doing three different movements. And, you know, guys are throwing up. And I remember the old videos of that. And they had a little pucometer in the corner on the, uh, on, on the videos. Like, this is a good thing. Like, you know, look, the, look how hard they're working. Um, and I think they're getting really good at doing Metcons with silly exercises, but it's probably not very stimulative. Um, maybe you can make an argument. They're, they're increasing glycogen capacity. I'm trying to be very charitable, but that's not a great way to grow from what we understand. Um, so I think that type of thing is, is, is really useful because bodybuilders have a propensity towards working really hard, but we want to make sure we direct that towards something that actually is uh, going to help them. I have one other point. To, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Brian. I, I just have one small point to add on to that. And I know Eric and I have discussed this in the past, but just the importance of defining when someone uses a, you know, the stimulus to fatigue ratio, or just mentions fatigue in general, you know, defining what type of fatigue they're specifically referring to, because, um, you know, like, like Eric said, there's the peripheral, there's the, the central element, there's muscle damage. Um, but I think in just anecdotally, the, the impression I get is a lot of these, these, um, measures that people are sort of throwing out there or the way they're perceiving fatigue in the moment is, is largely psychological, just like how, how, like how hard did this hurt you know, for, for what I got out of it? And, you know, a lot that, that's sort of another branch of, of fatigue in my opinion is just the, you know, how, how long can we stay motivated doing something this 
mentally demanding, you know, and even if it's on the physiological level, tolerable. Um, and obviously those two are interrelated, but, um, but yeah, you know, I, I think anytime somebody mentions a term is broad sweeping as fatigue, you, you need to not use specifically, but just in general, people need to be able to speak to a specific element that they're, they're trying to get at. And I think this, I think this is a very important point to make because, um, something that you said, Eric, about being progressive in nature within the sessions. I think that there is a bag stigma, especially like with the population I typically cater to, which is more the, the type A individual that's really, really hung up on progressive overload. I, I try to term it progressive stimulus when I t discuss it most of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, to the point that on a psychological perspective, they go into a session, let's say they hack squat eight plates for 10, and then they match it the next week that they think that they're not providing a hypertrophy stimulus with that set of a matched logbook rep. When in, in actuality, especially as we get into more advanced trainees where the progressions are much smaller um, over time, the obviously we're training a lot closer to failure more frequently and or at failure because it requires that in order to create the hypertrophy stimulus. I want to define within the session what progression over time long term looks like, because I think that that is something that a lot of psychological, psychologically, a lot of bodybuilders within my uh, community struggle with. And the fact that, oh, man, I matched this logbook from last week. I did not create a hypertrophy stimulus. Um, and I like I like hearing y'all discuss this. I would like it to be kind of delved out in what we're looking for in creating progressive stimulus over time across a either a micro cycle or even a macro cycle, if y'all want to go that far. Brian, you want to start? Or you want me to start? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, with this topic in particular, I think it's easy to sort of step back and first acknowledge the reality that there, there's a spectrum of, we know there's a spectrum of effective stimulus. There's not like a, a dot on the map that we're trying to hit. So, when it comes to volume, for example, you know, there's, there's a minimum effective dose and there's, you know, a maximum recoverable amount that we can do. The same thing is true for within a session. So it, it's not like we, it's not like our, you know, our physiology is, is waiting for the word that we completed that additional rep before it's like, signals to mTOR like let's go <laughs> you know? so it's uh it's not contingent on on surpassing or meeting a performance it's contingent on providing an adequate stimulus within this this range um and i think for me when i've explained it like that to to my clients in the past it it seemed to help um because like just critically when you think about it why why would it matter if we hit the same rep in order to elicit like a physiological cascade like it's they're not that interrelated um to the point that it's going to certainly to the point where it should stress somebody out <laughs> you know it's a something that over time you want to look at um and yeah obviously you want to look at um performance you know on average you know and it is people become more advanced, you know, maybe you look at, maybe it comes down to comparing an average session performance, like here's your mesocycle average for this lift, whether like you're doing a, a rep, estimated rep max or a 
you know, E1RM, if you know, for your power lifter, and then comparing that to the next mesocycle average, because within that performance is going to, it's going to fluctuate just because of fitness and fatigue dynamics, because of nutrition, um, you know, hydration. There's a lot of things independent of the magnitude of adaptations up to that point that is going to dictate and influence performance. I think that's, I'm, I really like where you started because it's a different place than I want to start. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll have a, a really good uh, perspective on this. I think um, to really answer your question, Luke, a big part is we have to acknowledge that there is a difference in, in the, the time course of adaptation, at least that's the way it looks, uh, in beginners, intermediate, advanced. Like the way I talk about this in my books and the way I explain it to people is a heuristic. Uh, and like the statistician Stephen Bach says, all models are wrong, but some models are useful. I think this is a useful model. So like if you look in my book and you've heard other people, like this isn't my idea. Um, you know, a beginner or a quote, a novice bodybuilder can make progress that is viewable in the logbook uh, each time they repeat a similar workout. Uh, more, more intermediate, it might be weekly or mesocycly, right? Somewhere in that range. And then advanced, it might take multiple mesocycles that you're hopefully streaming together purposefully and, and then seeing if you've made an adaptation. Now, the, where that heuristic can be misinterpreted is someone actually thinks that the actual time course of adaptation is taking longer. That's not true. It's that the magnitude of the adaptation is getting smaller and smaller and smaller such that you can't actually see the difference and it is subsumed by your normal amounts of performance variation. So in science, that's what we call a, like a real change. So if we know the biological variation in a measurement, the inherent precision error, and let's say the combined two are plus or minus 5%, for me to see a real change in, in that metric, it needs to be at least 6% down or up. So essentially what we're saying is that as you get more and more and more and more advanced, the kind of change you can make becomes less than that measurement error. So we need more time to observe it. If you can only add, I'll use a strength example because it's easier, one kilogram to your squat every mesocycle, that's less than a two than a 2.5 kilo, kilo add. And some people, that's why you see a ton of people write about this, they're like, let's do microloading. Well, what they're forgetting is it's not just measurement error. You don't have the static strength, right? Uh, there's a really cool study Zerdos did with a weightlifter and two powerlifters who were all you know, clustering around or just below or just above a 500 pound squat. So pretty damn well-trained lifters. And they squatted to a nine and a half or 10 RPE for 39 days in a row. And there was like a plus or five, my, like plus or minus 5% change on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, some of that was additional uh, variation caused because they were testing their one arm every day. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but just to show you that that means one day, if you're a 500 pound squatter, you could be squatting, you know, 25 pounds less than that. Right. Uh, and if you, if you, I'm a 500 pound squatter, as most of us do as your peak, that's actually the plus five. So that means you might have a 450 day or, or a 500 day or a 475 day. So uh, it bounced along a lot, but it went up over time. And these individuals did see strength increases between day 37 and day 39 compared to their pretest, which wasn't in this crazy fatigue state. So psychologically, that's very difficult to deal with. Um, the more advanced you get, uh, the more you start to look backward onto what, what worked when I was an intermediate and you try it out and it just doesn't have to see, have that same punch. You know, we call that the newbie gain phenomena. Um, and, I think it's really important that we 
have to pay respect to this, not only in terms of our structural changes to our programming, but also in the way we assess ourselves and the way that we coach people, because it is a challenge that almost everyone run, runs into. You mentioned it, Luke. I know Brian's experienced this personally. I've experienced it personally, and I've absolutely seen it with my clients because it can lead you to errors. I had a very stagnant period of training because I was looking to drive the numbers so much up that I was going through periods of low volume, high intensity powerlifting style training. And I actually saw my body shrink while my bench went up and then plateaued for a couple of years. Um, so I was minimizing fatigue and doing enough to stimulate progress uh, in terms of strength by highly specific training, but not enough to actually maximize hypertrophy. And I regressed to a level of hypertrophy that'd be supported by this high intensity powerlifting specific training. And, you know, basically maximizing some components of strength while letting others fall and plateaued for years. And then I finally started to train with more volume and all of a sudden it looked like I lifted again. So I think that that's, this, that's just an example of the type of error that can come from purely trying to beat the logbook and letting that be not the side effect of progress, but the entire goal and the only marker for knowing that you've pr produced a, I'll, I'll use your terminology, which I like, uh, progressive stimulus. So what I'm getting at is that if we understand that natural variation, then we shouldn't expect within shorter time periods as advanced lifters to be able to realize that progress on a regular basis. And we also have to then also acknowledge that we could be in a range of providing an optimal stimulus, but not seeing objective progress for that, that amount of time we discussed is what categorizes a novice intermediate or advanced lifter. So you kind of have to have some psychological strategies to work around that. What I generally do, because I use RPE, uh, is I encourage people to try to beat the logbook very conservatively if they think it'll meet their, meet their target RPE. Uh, Mike T describes this as a, um, like an aggressive autoregulation mentality. Like, yeah, eight RPE last time was 205. I'm going to try 210 this time. Uh, that's my plan going into it. If you do 190 on your warm-up and it's already above your RPE, yeah, you got to scale back. But if there's even a chance you could get, you know, 210 at eight RPE, great. And if it ends up being eight and a half RPE, all good. No, no big deal. I think if you have that mentality, but outside of that, the logbook is, is kind of irrelevant. You kind of have to have amnesia almost and operate just with, all right, I have some target numbers for these RPEs, but my goal is to hit these RPEs. I don't want to blow them up, but I can have almost an optimist, not like an Instagram optimist, but like a reasonable optimist prediction of what I can do today. Uh, you know, bet on my best performance, not necessarily just go purely off field, have a logbook informed auto regulation style. I think that encourages what we're talking about in the confines of an appropriate volume and an appropriate time course of when you expect to see gains. Um, one of the things I don't like about systems where you take advanced lifters and they are intending to kind of force progression on a mesocycle basis is it doesn't match that, that reality. Um, and I think it doesn't match the structural reality, but it does match the psychological reality. So to give kudos to kind of the RP system, if you're an advanced lifter and you're simply not going to see some objective logbook progress until like three months from now, no matter what you do, how optimal it is, uh, it feels good to add a set on a weekly basis. It makes it harder. You're doing something and you can see that there is progress because there's no limiter on number of sets you can perform except for, you know, time and your willingness to do it. Um, However, you, you can't always do another rep. You can't always add load. Um, and you can see how the psychology plays out. 
So for example, Dorian Yates, I love as a psychological example of having a very intensity focused mindset. When asked, what do you do when you plateau? He says, well, you have to find another way to do more intensity. I don't care if it's four straps. I don't care if it's negatives, but you have to do that. So on a like session to session basis, like, you know, spot me, I'll get another rep. I'm going to do it. You know, uh, let me get an eccentric on that. I'll, I'll add load and then just force the reps to, so I can still get six instead of five. And I think, I think we can all agree that there are some problems with that. Um, but I think for some reason right now, we're, we're ignoring that the same, uh, the same problem can exist when just, with just adding volume when you can't beat the logbook. And I'm not saying that's what um, Mike Isertel and colleagues advocate because uh, I think they have pretty conservative total volumes, uh, but I do think um, progressing volume doesn't match structurally what is going on in advanced lifters. Uh, they would make an argument it does from a fitness fatigue standpoint. I would make an argument that that almost assumes that advanced lifters aren't increasing their workload capacity and their ability to handle volume over time, but they are. Uh, I got a question recently. Uh, someone was asking me about appearance on another podcast and they were saying, uh, Hey, like, shouldn't we automatically be seeing advanced lifter strength go down if they're, they're progressing a stimulus? Like they can't make as many gains, right? Like I talked about before, but they have to do more work to, to create a stimulus. So they're almost using like a, a fixed mathematical model that your ability to recover doesn't change from going from novice to intermediate to advanced, but the workload you must do increases. And if that was true, what we would observe is that your strength performance would get more variable as you became advanced, right? You have to do more work to get a stimulus. So there's more fatigue, but it takes, uh, but you get a lesser gain. So you just see your strength start to bounce all, all down and, and, and it cycles all of a sudden it goes down. That's never been an anecdotal observation. No one observed like, yeah, I made steady progress as a, as a beginner. Then I made, you know, less steady progress as an immediate. And then I became advanced and I did enough to progress. And I squat 300 one day, 350 the next day. I don't know what's going on. It's all over the place. And every mess cycle, my, my strength just goes down and then it shoots up. And like every, every, every time I, I do a successful mess cycle, it's, it's like I, I did a taper. No one's ever reported that. And, and that's because the actual model of what's happening is that as you become beginner, uh, intermediate and advanced, you're able to handle a far greater amount of work. Even if you don't change your number of sets, you know, think about this. If you did, you know, three by 10 at 315 and now you do three by 10 at 365, you're handling a lot more total uh, stress on the body from a just, you know, a structural standpoint. So I think that's a really important thing to understand because of what is actually anecdotally ob observed is that you plateau when you hit an advanced level, not bounce all over the place, meaning you can recover from a stimulus, but you're not seeing that, that advancement. So I think hopefully that clears up some, some misconceptions people have. And why, like I said, I don't think that model matches up with, with re the reality structurally, but it is quite uh, appealing psychologically, which, which I think kind of makes sense. Brian, do you have anything you want to add on that? I was going um, no, I, I think, I mean, he brought up excellent points. I think, you know, to maybe add a, maybe a practical way to, or some practical considerations within um, programming to kind of consider is, you know, I've noticed for people that are you know, a little bit hung up on progressing the logbook, having them in this course comes down to fatigue too, but having them increase their rep range a little bit, um, you know, if they're training in the four to eight rep range and they're 
you know, things are just dragging on, um, you know, increasing the rep range. It's not necessarily that that's going to increase muscle growth. Like, like Eric said, the, the adaptations are occurring. Um, but you know, that, that extra rep isn't, you know, it's not done cooking yet. You know, it's, it's not ready to express itself. So, um, you know, once you increase that rep range, each, you know, additional rep, it's a, a smaller percentage of adaptation required. So I think just small things like that can, you know, just psychologically help some people. Um, and then just making sure, and I, I'm sure this is something most coaches do, but, you know, I've gotten the question from clients before, you know, all of my lifts are going well and increasing in weight, except for like my bicep curl or my lateral raise, you know, and it's like, you're not like simple math, you know? you're, you're not going to advance on those, those lifts as quickly. So, um, you know, I think the, the degree of concern that something may be suboptimal, um, or they may need more or a deload, you know, that for me, that sort of scales with, um, how heavy that lift is. Like if, if something is, you know, if they're not able to add five pounds on their squat, that's, you know, maybe that's an issue, you know, depending on where they're at in their training cycle or in their training career. Whereas, you know, if, it, if they're talking about a bicep curl, it's, that's not even going to concern me whatsoever. So, um, you know, looking at the lift in question, I think is a, is a very important um, thing to consider there as well. But in super, super deep layman terms, just so everyone understands what Brian's talking about. Um, if I told you to take your one RM and all right, next time I want you to do two reps with that. And you're like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm not, I'm, I'm not on gear or, or, or I'm not, I'm not Superman or I'm not whatever I, you, you think I can do. I can't do that next time. Like I'm not going to jump on some miracle drug that, that by Wednesday, all of a sudden my one, one RM is my two RM. But if I told you, hey, I want you to try to take your 15 RM and then do one more rep next time, you'd be like, I, I might be able to do that, get, get the right music mm -hmm. on. That's very reasonable because it's a much smaller percentage change. So that's a 100% increase. And the other one is 1 15th of the increase. Mm -hmm. um, and then with the, the bicep curl analogy, like if you, let's say you're curling 40s, you want to go to 45s, that's more than a 10% increase in load. But if you go from 300 to 305, that is like 1.5% increase in load. So I think uh, that that like no one consulted your biceps when they decided to make uh, the, the jumps on the dumbbell rack. Just just kind of consider that, you know. And, and to add, uh, oh, go ahead. Possibly a practical way of working around that. I like to use like a like a plus two or a plus three method on a rep range, typically because you're kind of forced into those progressions, right? Like you're forced into moving from a forty to a forty-five just due to the nature of how dumbbells are separated, right? So we can look to work above the rep range that's still providing a hypertrophy stimulus, still providing a progressive stimulus before we make such a big percentage load and jump where we can now reintroduce back into the target rep range and then progress it from there. And that's just like a, a practical tool. Um, one thing I, I do think that we can start to try to look at is like, we can start looking at defining progressions based on biomechanical setups, right? Like the harder the biomechanical setup, the harder the progression is going to be. We can look at percentage of load or whatever. Um, but just from where I'm at from a programming perspective is typically because we all have like our tendencies, right? Like everybody has their programming tendencies. 
I lean more towards the consistent volume with autoregulatory volume um, additions with the primary focus on logbook progressions within maintenance of form, uh, which is something that Brian, for me knowing Brian a little bit longer, has probably seen me transition quite a bit from my bullheadishness of logbook at all costs a couple of years ago, right? Um, but I still lean towards that model of trying to train closer to an MAV, make additions where we can and as we go along and then still focus on the primary being progressive overload via pro to provide uh, the progressive stimulus. So what metrics are we using to define progress outside of performance? Because a lot of times from like another crowd's perspective outside of that, the first comment that comes back up at me is we're not power lifters, right? We're not looking to like, like you said, we're obviously not training one RM to two RM. So we're looking at making progressions on a smaller scale up in higher rep ranges, but that comment is still floated. So what do we, how do we respond to that in that nature of we're primarily using progressions within a logbook as a way to provide progressive stimulus, but how can we look at this as like all the metrics within progression? So just so I kind of, to rephrase your question, just so I understand it right. So are, are you asking, you know, what is the best way to assess progress? Is there a better way to assess progress outside of performance? Exactly. Um, I don't, in short, I don't think there's anything that makes as much sense as looking at progress. But I think progress can be very misleading depending on what lift you're, you're looking at. Um, you know, any compound movement that, you know, especially if it's, if it's a free weight movement, um, or let's just say the more skilled a movement is, the more increases or, you know, decreases in, in performance, or I should say the, the less, I think, indicative that the argument could be made that that is of, you know, reflective of muscle growth. So, you know, I, um, I looked at, you know, isolation movements, and this is another thing James Krieger has written about um, in the past, but isolation movements is a, a better proxy for, um, you know, that relationship between performance increases and, and muscle growth. That relationship is probably a little bit stronger. Um, Simply because there's, there's low less complexity movements, not even necessarily. yeah low complexity or, or I, yeah. yeah so I mean you machine could, row yeah so anything that's yeah very easy and I would say isolation movements on a machine would be the far end of that spectrum so um, so I, I think those in reasonably you know moderate to high rep ranges it's like I, I think most people are going to see progress in those over time um, with, you know, additional reps. But, um, you know, outside of that, I mean, we have to just consider the alternatives. Like, what are the alternatives that aren't subjective in nature? Like, I don't really know if they're, I mean, you can look at something like muscle soreness or, you know, muscle damage, which, you know, can be measured in a lab. But a lot of people, um, you know, look at, Soreness is an indicator. They look at pump as an indicator. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but probably not the most reliable indicators for, you know, the effectiveness of, of a stimulus for hypertrophy. So 
I, I would say performance with the caveat that you're looking and interpreting that performance correctly. I'd add, um, so performance is the output of, you know, fatigue and stimulus, right? Um, so that means there is maybe some utility in assessing fatigue. Um, so getting a, uh, a well-asked subjective questionnaire related to fatigue doesn't tell you if you're progressing because you could, you know, you could start running marathons and that, that would be independent or not, not directly helpful or, or causing useful fatigue like we talked about earlier. Um, but uh, essentially, even if you just use performance, if you plateau, you don't know if it's because you're not doing enough or if you're doing too much. Mm -hmm. So the, the next question is then, okay, well, if I'm plateaued, now you get to enter this flow chart. And again, in my book, something I've talked about a lot. How do you even, like some people are, they, they're confused about when they should even be on the flow chart. And that goes back to, well, what's a reasonable time course when we could expect to see these performance adaptations? Um, so if we're in this category of talking about advanced lifters, I would agree with Brian, performance is probably the best you got. If you're intermediate or beginner, I've got no problem with you, say, looking at scale weight and, and a, like a waist measurement or yep. like a hip measurement or a thigh measurement for a gal. You know, like That's a good if, point. Those, if those aren't going up, but your scale weight is, or let's say your, your biceps are going up a little bit or your chest measurement's going up or your, your shoulder measurement and your waist isn't, um, probably a good metric, right? I think you do need to know what's realistic. Like you don't want to check to see if you've added half an inch on your bicep every mesocycle. Cause then like, like you're not the Akira monster. Like you're, you're, you're a human. <laughs> you're not going to just, you know, grow forever um, or measurably. So I think you have to, like, I think pictures, you know, scale and, and, and tape measure combinations, if they're done properly for earlier stage lifters uh, under the right time course is very reasonable. So like, even if I've got a relatively advanced lifter, um, I might, every two to three mesocycles ask for a visual update. Um, the more advanced they are, the more I'm looking at just how much body fat are they accumulating while we're in a small, small surplus versus, let me see if their, their medial delt grew. Like that, I'm, that's, I'm not actually trying to think I can, I can gauge muscle growth visually for a highly advanced lifter, but don't get me wrong on, on beginners and, and, and even early to mid-stage uh, intermediates, doing a visual check or some measurements every few months, uh, I think can provide maybe even better data. Um, I think this conversation is often dominated by people who know that that's not realistic during a gaining phase, very helpful during a fat loss phase. Cause you can make fat loss go just at the, the limits of thermodynamics, not the, the limits of your adaptation rate. Uh, but for, for muscle gain, uh, an advanced lifter, I think performance is stop one. And then from there you have to determine, all right, if I'm not seeing performance in a reasonable time frame for my level, then why? So if I'm plateaued, okay, what could be causing it? Is it something related to fatigue or is it something related to me not doing enough? If you feel, if, if you have some objective, subjective markers, so things that have semi-validated based on prior literature, like I asked people, um, so for, for one, are your loads actually going down? Like, are you uh, seeing that drop in performance? And uh, you, you know, you're not doing a very, very minimalistic program that probably is from fatigue. That's one metric. Are you also losing some motivation to train? Is your sleep cycle disrupted? Um, or is your subjective stress levels uh, higher than normal? 
do you have more muscle damage and aches and pains? Uh, that probably isn't related to how effective the stimulus it is, but it is a marker for, for one of the types of fatigue we talked about. So if you've got a number of these markers of subjective fatigue, along with objective performance uh, being stagnant or going down, you're probably doing too much. Uh, or maybe, like if you check that at the end of a cycle when you're meant to do a deload and then test, that's fine. So there, there are some context that's important. But uh, I think the definition of a plateau is quite, a, is quite important. Like if you're going multiple weeks and not making progress as a novice or multiple mesocycles in, as an intermediate, you need to figure out, okay, what's the nature uh, of this lack of performance increase? Uh, do I need to do more? Is it time for me to train more like an advanced lifter who's doing a little more and waiting a little longer to see uh, that, that payoff? So that's not another metric of performance, but it does, tell, help you, it does help tell you what that performance metric means and, and what decisions you should probably make because of it. Well, guys, that was, that was absolutely fantastic. I think that unless, Matt, you have another question, I think it might be good to kind of wrap things up and give some – general perspectives for people to look for based on the conversation. Um, the only yeah. one that I would, go ahead. What's up? Go ahead. Go ahead. The only one that I would add that we didn't get to touch on a lot is take the time to break down your body part selection into basic movement patterns and then program off of that. Because I think I see a lot of mistakes with the amount of times we're actual loading throughout a week. A lot of the times mistakes with pressing patterns that are extremely similar being trained at too high of volumes that are, causing performance decrements and, and trying to define your, your movement selection based on movement patterns outside of solely just the body part they train. And, and that will help with setting some landmarks of what you can recover from a little bit more optimally so that you can provide as much progressive stimulus as you can possibly can. Um, Matt, if you had any follow-up questions from that, I'm going to let them wrap it up and add any context they think needs to be taken away from this conversation into applying it to their own programs. No, no, I think, uh, I think Brian and Eric, you guys can, uh, you guys can take it away if you have anything to add to uh, what, what Luke just said. Um, but man, this conversation has been fantastic. So thank you guys. Um, yeah, a couple things, you know, one thing, uh, Luke, when we, you had, uh, Matt Jansen and I on, um, when you guys, you and Matt did, um, one thing that, that Matt mentioned that, you know, I, I think is very easily overlooked. You'd said like, wh where do you start with, you know, when designing a program? And one of the things he mentioned, um, you know, just execution, like the, executing the lift, like that, that should take precedence over all of the other programming variables. It's like you have exercise selection, but are you, are you performing them in a way where you have the green light to even manage volume, you know, or do you just need to clean up your technique? Um, and I, I think that's like as obvious as that sounds, that's very often overlooked. And, you know, I've, mm -hmm. I don't know if I've told this story on, on this podcast, but, you know, I, I, I had a natural pro bodybuilder that I was working with who, um, you know, came to me and said, you know, I've, my chest is, a stubborn body part and his shoulders were very developed and his chest was, you know, underdeveloped, underdeveloped comparatively. I mean, it was still good, but it wasn't, you know, to the, to the level of his shoulders, but he had said, you know, I, I'm doing like 30 plus, 
you know, I, I need to do like I'm 25 to 30 sets of chest a week in order to, to move the needle. And, you know, it's, there, there's going to be outliers, but anytime someone's like, that's their MEV <laughs> or that's, it's a red flag. And so, um, you know, we reviewed some video and then, you know, his, his execution, um, you know, it, it could have been cleaned up. Like he was operating through a full range of motion, but you know, he wasn't keeping his joints stacked. It was, his pressing was like a very much a shoulder movement in comparison. So um, just cleaning that up alone, you know, we took him from, you know, what he was doing like high twenties down to like mid teens, better managed fatigue and was getting a better stimulus and things really took off. So, um, so yeah, that, that, that is something that, you know, even I, I catch myself, you know, in my own training, trying to, um, you know, make sure that I'm before I'm worried about the, the smaller details, just making the most out of each set. And I think that's something that, that mentality of, you know, maximizing the efforts within each set, um, and sort of looking at things on a set to set basis can, it can benefit people, um, to do. Now, you know, one thing that, um, you know, we had talked about, I'm a fan in, in many cases of, you know, keeping RIR sort of static or within, you know, plus or minus one, um, and sort of working up and down a rep range. But, you know, where, where I sort of got that approach from is, is what we see in most research studies anyway, where they're operating within a rep range, but it's there as soon as they're, they're training to failure in every set. So it's like a 10 to 15 RM, you know, and then once it's like load is adjusted to keep them in the rep range. And that's essentially what we're doing or, you know, that I'm doing with that, but with a RIR cap, so to speak. So, um, but even that method of training to failure every set, like that's still auto-regulated in nature in a sense, because performance is still an outcome, you know, based off of their readiness for that given set. And so I think an argument can almost be made that, you know, mo most lifters, you know, even advanced bodybuilders that, that I see in the gym, like Luke, I know you were here in Denver a while back and you trained at Armbrust, you know, so like even some of the top level bodybuilders that train there, a lot of them aren't using a logbook. you know, they're, they're just going in, they're working their ass off and it's easy to sort of look at that approach as sort of fly by the seat of your pants, you know? And, but at the end of the day, like they're, they're probably still checking those boxes, you know, they're, they're still pushing themselves to that ceiling. They're doing extra reps when they're able to. And so that's, that's one one area where training to failure, I think a benefit that's somewhat overlooked is it, it eliminates that subjective thinking in a sense. It's like you're taking those reps as they become available. And when you, if you're doing that, like logging is sort of not, I mean, it's still a good idea because you can assess where you're going, but in terms of moving the stimulus, it's not really necessary. And so those, I, I think in those cases when people are using similar exercise selection, they sort of keep track in the back of their mind. Um, I'm not sure how much of a disservice they're doing in, in those cases. And I, you know, early on in my training career, you know, the first couple of years, and I, I would imagine, you know, the same might be true for everyone here is, you know, I wasn't logging things 
to a, you know, in a logbook every session. Like I would go in, someone would say like three sets of 10 and you would just sort of assume like, okay, each one of those sets is, you know, close to failure. <laughs> you know, you would, you would train there and you would get stronger over time. And you knew like last week, you know, or last month I was doing like the 55s and now like I'm going to try 65s and you just kind of work your way up. Um, and so I think that intuitive approach to progression can be there um, or intuitive approach to structure can be there if you're training to failure. And it's not something I think is optimal, but I think it, it, it explains why a lot of these people are still seeing really good results. And so it's, it's easy to get lost in the, the small details and forget that, that the boxes are still being checked in those cases. I love it. I agree with everything you said there. I think um, sometimes these conversations we have of almost like volume versus intensity force us down into these pathways that are problematic. Um, if we do acknowledge, and most people would, that volume is basically the dosage of stimulus and intensity is the stimulus, um, you know, progressive tension overload, how much to overload, that's volume then we have to then kind of view it, or we should rather, if we, under, if we accept that, as we turn up the volume when the stimulus is not enough, right? Um, so it's not about volume or intensity. It's about, you know, how much in, in intensity do you need through volume manipulation? So it's this quality before quantity thing, you know? So like I said earlier, do your job. Like uh, when you show up, have some awareness of what your logbook was, which like Brian said, people train it a failure kind of just do by intuition. They don't just randomly choose a weight and so many reps they can do it and go to failure. They do something similar to last time, you know? Um, and you guys still there? Did I freeze? All good. Okay. Um, so you don't just randomly choose a weight. You know, when you go and just train it a failure, you, you, you do something similar to last time and try to beat it. Uh, even if you're not keeping a log. So, like I was saying before, you know, go in with the logbook informing you to some degree, but then forget about it. And you're there to perform that set to, to, the, to the standard, to do your job, to meet the RPE target, to perform the movement as you, as you do and do it well. Uh, and I think that it is definitely something I would agree with. Um, the last thing I would say is we need to have intent over dogma. Like uh, I absolutely have no issue with the concept of adding sets in a week to week basis if there is intent behind that. So, so one example of when I do add sets over a mesocycle is when I'm trying to give someone in a broader periodization context, and now we're micro in this, I'm gonna get a little macro. Um, if I want someone to go through a higher volume phase, uh, I probably am going to reduce the stimulus to fatigue ratio on a lot of the movements. We'll do more machines, more higher reps. I'm gonna make it be something that they can, they can handle generally uh, in, in the, the least amount of stress on their body and the least psychologically challenging. So we're thinking about, okay, increasing reps, RPEs are going to be slightly submaximal, uh, more machine work, stuff like that. But if I want to get there and I've just been on a more, say, power building style training program with more compounds, free weights, more loads in like the, the six to 10 uh, rep range, I have to bridge to that somehow. So I'll probably have a mesocycle where I start to swap out some movements and then take them from the number of sets they were doing and start incrementally bumping them up in preparation for probably after a deload that higher volume uh, mesocycle. So 
when I have kind of like my mesocycles that I stream together, I'll often have like static mesocycles where we're, we're, we're doing the intensity thing, this block slightly. We're doing the volume thing for this block slightly. But to get between them, I will have those very RP-esque uh, volume bridges uh, so that I'm not just throwing them in the deep end to a stimulus they're really not able to handle, uh, to bridge the rep ranges, to bridge the total volumes. And I think that that is basically what periodization for bodybuilding looks like. Uh, in my opinion, using a more kind of like emerging framework. Well, guys, I think that was absolutely perfect. I think that last part touches on like how important what the prior stimulus was before you kind of string into the next one that I think is often missed. And that was a fantastic conversation, Matt, if you have anything else, let it out, um, but wrap us up and let's, let's call it a day. No, I'm, I mean, the conversation today was fantastic. I mean, like the, the takeaways from this, I hope you guys, you know, have your notebook handy um, maybe I should try and, uh, put some timestamps in here for you guys, but, uh, like it, it, the, the conversation was amazing and hopefully it like, it's really eye opening because I think it was like very open-minded conversation. Um, and a lot of the conversations around subjects like this are like really closed off. Um, you know, like we get into these camps of this and that and that, and like people just sit on their camp and, um, and basically defend it. Um, and so it, it's really nice when we have these like open-minded discussions and we can hear, um, you know, like, you know, here's my thought process, but I can see where this person's coming from. It's, it, it's, it's great to see that. Um, and so thank you guys for, for having that conversation with us today. And, um, I, I, hopefully everyone that's listening learned, uh, a ton from this. So thank you guys. If, uh, if, if you guys have anything you want to say, like, if you have anything coming out if you want to uh, let people know where to find you please do so now brian kick it off brother um i guess best way just instagram at bd minor you can access everything else from there short and sweet uh, <laughs> nothing uh, else coming up <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just want to say thank you guys for hosting this conversation i really enjoyed it um always a pleasure uh, with you, Brian, and, and great to meet meet both of you. And uh, I thought this was, was really uh, really an honor, so thank you. Um, you can find me at Helms3DMJ, or you can start on the website side uh, at 3dmusclejourney.com, and you can pretty much find links out to all the stuff I do from there. Awesome, awesome. Thank right. you, gentlemen. Thanks a lot, you guys. It was great. Absolutely. Fantastic conversation. And uh, we'll catch everyone in the next episode.